Uh, it's my privilege to speak this afternoon, as Tim has said, on sexuality, worldview, and the philosophical roots, or the religious roots, of pornography. Obviously, when we speak about a subject like this one, the first thing that we typically do, uh, which I will touch on very briefly, is think about the statistical realities, the sociological uh, implications, the social ramifications, and uh, consider various studies that have been done to demonstrate that, and so on. But that doesn't always get us to the, in fact, doesn't get us to the root, actually, to the very heart of the problem. Those are looking at the fruits of the problem. And I hope that by the end of this, uh, this afternoon, we'll have ha had a little bit of an insight into the roots of the problem. Why don't we actually, before we begin, just say a word of prayer. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for this time that we have together over these couple of days to think about, to reflect on a critical issue that is facing your church, your people, and our culture. And Lord, in many respects, we feel helpless against it, like a small group of people against a tidal wave. But we pray that you would encourage our hearts in these 48 hours, strengthen our faith, equip us, alert us, encourage us, build us up, renew again our understanding of your power and the power of the gospel to transform and to change lives. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds this afternoon and enable us to take in the many things that various speakers are going to say to us today. Uh, that we'd be able to make use of it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, obviously, for the Christian, uh, Paul gives us the uh, standard of where our minds and hearts uh, should be focused. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. And in many respects here, this is not just an outline for the Christian life, this is an outline for a Christian culture, one that focuses on what is pure and lovely and commendable, where there is moral excellence and where there is praise, dwell on these things. Now, of course, Paul doesn't mean, therefore, that you can't consider the problems that are facing and challenging. We're considering, in these two days, pornography. But with the objective of advancing those things which are commendable and just and true and pure. So maybe the first question we should ask ourselves, if you haven't done yet, is what is pornography? Now, pornography is not a new phenomena. Uh, it's as old as human civilization. Now, these two vases, and these were the, the most uh, innocuous ones that I could find, 
I showed the others to my wife. She said, you can't put those up. So uh, these were the... Now, you can, you, can, what, you can see these in a museum. These are about 2,500-year-old Greek uh, vases. The, the phenomena of pornography is not new. It's as old as human civilization. So whilst we need to, uh, with uh, clearness of head, recognize the challenge we're facing today because of the delivery system, essentially, of pornography that's made it so ubiquitous with modern media. The issue itself, the problem itself, is not new. It's always been there. And uh, the two perhaps most famous examples are the Greek vases and in the ancient resort of Pompeii, which came to a troubling end, there were painted pornographic scenes on the walls. Now, it's important to remember there that the Greeks did not distinguish between art and pornography. We do. And you know why we even distinguish pornography? Because of Christianity. The only reason we have a category called pornography that is censured to some degree, or censored, is because of the Christian faith. The Greeks simply depicted scenes from life, and for them that included all kinds of sexual activity, homosexuality, bestiality, and so forth, and they depicted it. And they depicted it on ordinary household items. Uh, they would have been painted on their walls, and so on. So the very fact that we can have a conference on something like this is actually still, strange as it may seem, testament to the fact that we've been so deeply impacted by Christianity that we make a distinction between art, although we'll come to the law and the way it doesn't at the moment, uh, well, the way it does, I should say, the way the law does that, between art, though, and pornography. We make a distinction. Now, the word itself is of Greek origin, from pornos graphos. It literally means writing about prostitutes. Writing about prostitutes, about whoredom, essentially. That's where the word comes from. And the New Testament porneia means sexual immorality, which again is primarily associated with whoredom. It's the origin of the word. Now, of course, uh, words develop in their meaning. They often are modified. They change in their meaning. So in modern culture, the meaning is associated with gratuitously explicit depictions of sexuality which debase sex and exploit the sexual passions. And that's why we have made a distinction, at least culturally, between art and pornography. It's associated with gratuitously explicit depictions of sexuality which debase and exploit the sexual passions. Now, in the present moment, there's almost been a, a further defining of pornography. Because, of course, not everything that's erotic, eros, is pornography. I mean, if you read the Song of Solomon, for example, and you read it not just as a typological scholar, uh, but you just read it, it's clearly a love poem between a husband and a wife. And it's meant to be erotic. It's meant to, be, uh, it's meant to have a sexual connotation. You can't read the Song of Solomon without recognizing sexuality, human sexuality, marital love, uh, 
and uh, a healthy eroticism. So not everything that is erotic is pornographic. Technically, in our time, pornography is seen as that which seeks to generate a response by pairing strongly sexual themes with other mechanisms. It pairs strongly sexual themes with other mechanisms. They are usually aggressive, exploitative, dehumanizing themes that break down long-established taboos. Aggressive, dehumanizing, exploitative themes that break down long-established taboos. So that's the focus of a modern uh, pornography. To pair the erotic not just with the promiscuous, uh, but with the aggressive and the violent is uh, dangerous. And any explicit depiction, even if it's without overt violence, that objectifies, demeans, and exploits the beauty and the sacredness of the sexual encounter in lovemaking are morally and psychologically risky and constitute pornography. So, we'd, and I'll come back to this shortly, we do need to be careful that as we oppose pornography, we don't oppose healthy human sexuality. I'm going to come back to make a few remarks on that uh, later, because the Bible clearly celebrates human sexuality in the context of marriage. And it's not afraid of being strongly sexed. Um, maybe I should come back to this later, but it uh, just shot through my mind now, so I'll pull a chair out for it and let it sit down. Um, is uh, the, the, the Victorian age uh, was an age, in many respects, of prudery. And I'll come back to make some further comment on that. But the Puritans, the early evangelicals, were not prudes. And in fact, uh, I looked at a, a case in which one church in America, a Puritan church in the uh, 17th century, placed a man under church discipline for not having sex with his wife because she complained to the elders that he was not fulfilling his marital responsibilities and he was placed under church discipline. So the Victorians, uh, the, uh, the Puritans, the early evangelicals were not afraid of human sexuality, and they recognized what marriage was. But the pornographers directly challenge all former social constraints of what was brought to us by, what was given to us by a pervasive Christian worldview in our society. The pornographers challenge, and this is why it's a philosophical issue, it's a religious issue, it's not just rude pictures not just unclean films. There is a direct challenge to all the former restraints of a once Christianized culture that fosters a dehumanizing biological reactivity in which predominantly, though not exclusively, predominantly women are exploited by men and so a social taboo is assaulted. It's not just... Uh, women who are being exploited, but it's predominantly the exploitation of women. Now, 
This is obviously, as we've already heard this morning, a massive problem facing Christians now. Now, this was a problem facing the early church because for early Christians, the raw, perverse sexuality was on public display. It was performed in the theater. It was there in the Colosseum. It was there in pederastic relationships that were all around you. But we have the rise of an industry today and all the social, emotional, spiritual, and health problems that attend it. Even in the church, one of the most common pastoral problems among men, and as a pastor I know this, is porn use and addiction. According to Pamela Paul of Time Magazine, author of the 2005 book Pornified, men look at pornography online more than they look at any other subject. There are around 40 million regular users of online pornography in America alone, consuming one in five of all rentals and pay per view. $4 billion is spent on pornography just in the United States. So you have this accessibility, you have anonymity, and so you, there's the creation of a sexual narcotic that is affecting the lives of untold Millions of people, of course, performers as well as users. Dr. Je uh, Jeffrey Satinover is a psychiatrist, physicist, former fellow at Yale. He put it this way. With the advent of the computer, the delivery system for this addictive stimulus has become nearly resistance-free. It is as though we have devised a form of heroin a hundred times more powerful than before usable in the privacy of one's own home, and injected directly into the brain through the eyes. It's now available in unlimited supply via a self-replicating distribution network, glorified as art and protected by the Constitution. Pornography is actually protected as art in Canada under recent legislation to curb prostitution, which is actually a good law, there was the Conservatives, um, the last government managed to draft a very good law. I was actually speaking with um, a number of organizations who were having input into the drafting of that law. And I suggested to them that this would be a, a great opportunity to, because of this legislation against prostitution, to address pornography, the making of pornography. Because if they were trying to, the law was to address, rather than the prostitutes themselves, the Johns, those who were buying sex, to legislate against that. Well, what is the making of pornography but the purchase of sex? Just it's got a camera there. Well, it turned out that when the law, when the law was crafted and very carefully worded, pornography was specifically protected as art uh, in this law against their prostitution. According to the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton, every second there are nearly... 30,000 internet users viewing pornography, and there are approximately 116,000 online searches for pornography every day. Today, one new porn video title is produced every 39 minutes just in the US. American children begin consuming hardcore pornography at an average age of 11. Four out of five 16-year-olds regularly access pornography. The porn industry is a 97 billion business worldwide. It's 13 billion just in the United States. 
And we've already heard some of this from Andrea, but in 2014, study found that 76% of British men watch internet pornography, as do 36% of British women. Women uh, now represent about 30% of the consumers of internet pornography. And a 2008 study of college students discovered that 31% of young women reported using pornography versus 87% of young men. And uh, those aren't the latest figures. So this, is, this narcotic has become a major problem. Andrea also mentioned in passing studies in, of Christians. Here was a Barnard study of 2014. Two-thirds of self-professed Christian men watch porn monthly, about the same as secular men. And 15% of Christian women watch it monthly was the stat that I read, which was about half uh, of secular women. Um, that's 2014, that's one study. But overall, porn sites get more visit each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter put together. So this is uh, one of the defining problems of our time, and it's depersonalizing steady, steadily a generation of young people, and it's remapping their neural pathways in their brain. I'm sure that some of our other speakers who are much more expert on this will talk about this, but it's remapping their neural pathways, and it creates an insatiable appetite for more, with each time less fulfillment being experienced and a declining ability, a declining sexual ability in the real world. And it also generates a tolerance for depravity so that gradually people use, lose their ability to feel shock. They lose their ability to feel disgust, except the abhorrence that they feel for not feeling the revulsion that they think they ought to feel, but don't. A huge meta-study collected research and published, uh, published in, um, in peer-reviewed English language journals between 1995 and 2015. A total of 109 publications containing 135 studies were actually looked at, and they provided consistent evidence that laboratory exposure and regular everyday exposure to this cons content are directly associated with a range of consequences, including higher levels of body dissatisfaction, greater self-objectification, greater support of sexist beliefs, and of adversarial sexist beliefs especially, greater tolerance of sexual violence towards women as well. And the experimental exposure to this content showed that it leads both men and women to have a diminished view of a woman's competence, morality, and humanity. So it affects actually how we view uh, uh, men and women. It affects how we view their relationships with one another. It affects how we view society as a whole. So let's think for a moment about the scriptural foundations of true sexuality. Whatever subject a person considers, it doesn't matter what subject you're dealing with, today we're dealing with the issue of pornography, it's done from a worldview perspective, a world and life view. Which means that a set of assumptions, a set of ultimate assumptions about the nature of the universe, about God, about human life, is going to govern your theories and conclusions about every type of question. Every type of question is informed 
and handled in terms of a world and life view. This is especially obvious in the area of ethics, of course, and in questions of personal, social, and political morality. You know, what made me chuckle when uh, Andrea was showing the citations from those justices, well, actually, you saw it there between, was it, um, what was the first guy's name, beginning with H? Mumby, beginning with M. Mumby and Denning, right? Mumby and Denning, was that they were coming from two entirely different world and life views. That affected, affected their view of law and social order. That was the issue. The difference is that Mumby was not smart enough to recognize he is coming from a religious perspective. It's just not a Christian one. He's talking in terms of the philosophy of John Rawls and uh, the contractarian ideas that they're coming from a pub the issue of public reason, a neutral public reason, not recognizing that that is a world and life view. It's a religious perspective. The biblical interpretative structure, though, the worldview, in other words, of the Bible tells us that people, men and women, are created in the image of God who is totally personal and they are made to reflect his moral will, purpose, character and beauty in and to creation. That's what it means to be an image bearer. It's to reflect something. <coughs> to reflect God's will, his purpose, his character, his beauty, in and to creation. And that, uh, the nature of human beings as God's image bearers, gives us this ineradicable dignity and worth. And that means that our lives and our sexuality are wonderful and sacred. They are consecrated, in other words. They are set apart for conformity to God's word and purpose. This means that all of life and all our health are on God's terms. Now, it's important to say here, you see, that the fall of man, as some uh, of the atheists have suggested in their writings in the last decade or so, and even some of the uh, church fathers influenced by Greek philosophy, tended to uh, in interpret the fall in terms of sex, as though somehow it was... Uh, sexuality or something to do with sex that engendered the fall and so this is now a dirty thing think about the way people have often talked about sex and sexuality you know doing the dirty the de demeaning ways in which God's good gift is spoken about and treated but the fall was not a fall from some androgynous asexual situation uh, into human sexuality that's not the biblical vision of the human person. In biblical faith, we live in a personal, not an impersonal world, and all our acts are personal and relational in a universe that has an inescapably ethical aspect to it. So none of our acts take place in an ethical or moral vacuum, including sexual acts. So you can't distance yourself ethically and morally from what you think about sexuality or from sexual acts. The aspect, the structure in creation, what happens in idolatry is the aspect or structure, an aspect or structure of creation is objectified. So sex is being objectified. Then it's idolized in a pornographic culture. 
And as such, it's debased in the process. When you idolize something, you take it out from what it was meant to be creationally, you actually end up debasing and destroying it. You distort it. And this subject simply was not spoken about enough. One of the issues that we have today, once again, the Christians are scrabbling to figure out how to respond to this, is because we didn't know really how to talk about human sexuality properly because of prudery and frigidity. Now, I mentioned the Victorian age. Women were typically required to remain indoors when they were pregnant. Why? Well, because you don't put on display the fruits of that thing. Augustine, the great church father, who thankfully acquiesced to the notion that the Bible does in fact teach marriage, is good because a lot of the uh, to, to church fathers who were impacted by Greek philosophy tended to, to disparage marriage and they idealized a single existence, a non-sexual existence. And yet even though Augustine affirms marriage, he actually says, but even better is if you can be married but not have sex. Have a continent marriage. Right? Not be engaged in, in sexual activity. Uh, because he said, you know, that some of the the, um, the movements involved and so forth were a bit earthy and a bit, uh, you know, unsavory and so on. So they had this very, um, and this was because of Greek thought, again, that idealized a spiritual realm of ideas and tended to look down on the material created where I'm mean, going actually led them into all kinds of debauchery too. You had two different responses. I haven't got time to talk about all of that, how the Greeks reacted in terms of their philosophy to despising earth, despising creation, despising the body. But the Bible doesn't do that. That's why you've got a book like the Song of Solomon. And the, I mean, you can, and I, one of my favorite preachers of the 19th century is Charles Spurgeon. What a marvelous preacher. Can I find a sermon anywhere on marriage and sex in Charles Spurgeon's corpus? Well, I can find references to marriage, but nothing really about human sexuality. It just wasn't spoken about. And that was the impact of rationalism, of the Enlightenment, on the thinking of the church. The rationalist philosophers typically despised women, viewed women as non-reason, emotional, temptresses. Right? Some of the rationalist philosophers had that view. Man was the apex of reason. And so, of course, all this stuff went on behind closed doors. You know, it was all, it was, it was just hidden away. So it's really important that we affirm and learn how to affirm the goodness, the beauty, the value of human sexuality as a good gift of God to be celebrated and enjoyed in the context of marriage. So good on that woman in the 17th century who went to the elders to complain about her husband. Because that actually is what part of what marriage is about. I didn't get married just to have a friend. I've got lots of friends. Right? There's the, the, what defines, what qualifies the marriage relationship as a unique kind of friendship is the sexual bond. And if we can't talk about that, 
and can't recognize it and celebrate it even in the life of the church, we've got a problem. Because what will, what will happen is people will look at our opposition to pornography, which is just the distortion of that which is good, because what we need to do is redirect human sexuality, not throw it overboard. If we throw it overboard, there won't be any human race. <laughs> the only reason we're here is because of human sexuality. We have to learn to redirect it. Otherwise, we'll just be written off as prudes, as people who do not understand the, the, the world and who are frightened of human sexuality. Okay. This is what the Lord Jesus said. He who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, for that reason, because there's male and female, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now that is a sexual reference. That's not just a spiritual thing. Oh, we've got this spiritual union. No, one flesh is indicative of the sexual union, which qualifies the bond of marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. That's Jesus' own teaching on marriage. The apostolic council in Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In other words, protect the marriage bed. And I could go on, I could tell you, this is not a marriage seminar, but Paul is very clear that in the marriage relationship, Paul says, don't deprive one another except by mutual agreement, lest you fall into temptation, or you've agreed to set certain time aside for prayer. And he says, and if you do that, if you set some time aside for, for a, a, a spiritual discipline, make sure you come together again. So the Bible... Christianity, though opposed to the distortion of sexuality in pornography, is all for and insists on, in fact, a right understanding of human sexuality in the marriage relationship and the celebration of it. We see in Scripture, then, that our sexuality, the distinction of the sexes, is an important aspect of the image of God as is fidelity in the marriage relationship. You see, if we can't give, if we can't offer the world not just moralism, condemnation of what they're doing, but a better, beautiful picture of what God intends, what, what are we actually offering them? Just sounds like you're shouting from the sidelines, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing the other. And we are telling them to stop, but why? Because God has ordained a pattern that's not destructive, but wholesome and renewing and restorative. The image in this image then is the biblical foundation for the sanctity of human sexuality that is rejected in paganism for a radical promiscuity. In the scriptural view, there is this one context for the gift of sexual intimacy to be celebrated and enjoyed in a committed, respectful marriage relationship. And it's here that honor, love, mutual self-sacrifice, and self-giving are designed to bring wholeness, integration, in other words, satisfaction into people's lives, where sexual union expresses 
completes and perpetually consummates a mysterious union. Now that means, you know, you don't get married and then it's just you've consummated the marriage and that's it. Right? It's a perpetual, the marriage relationship is a perpetual consummation of the unity of the mystery of marriage. So it's important that we affirm as Christians the completely good, thoroughly human, fully personal, pleasurable, spiritual act designed for that committed relationship. It's important that we affirm that. This integrating biblical idea is, is a foreign perspective today. You see, you have to understand that the reason pornography has so much power, I mean, look how many people it's captured. You've, you've been hearing the statistics all morning. How can something have so much power? Because it takes something which is fundamentally a good, idolizes it, distorts it, and turns it into something that's destructive. That's why it's powerful. If, if, if our sexuality and sex itself were not a good thing, a blessing, it wouldn't have anything like this kind of power. But it has power to capture people because it lies to them about what it's able to do, what it's able to accomplish, and people believe that lie. Every other form, then, of sexual expression outside of this relationship is seen as ultimately disintegrating and detrimental, in inevitably in resulting in emotional, physical, and social deterioration. And pornography is one expression of the abandonment of this as the ideal. The celebration of pornography is one expression of the abandonment of this ideal, and it's rewiring people's understanding of sex and human sexuality. Now, it's still the case in the Western world that most women desire a marital relationship based on mutual respect, integrity, fidelity, and romantic love. If that were not the case, it would be the end of the rom-com. You look at all the, basically, the still the romantic comedies, doesn't how many, matter how many homosexual characters they throw in for good measure, right? The rom-com is still fundamentally based on the idea you know, some, men, some of us men call it the chick flick, right? That a woman wants a committed, faithful, marital relationship. A romantic relationship. I've got two daughters and a son. My oldest daughter is 17 and my, my other daughter is 15. And sometimes I'm sat at the table hearing them talking. You know, they've just come back from the Worldview Leadership Camp. Oh, there was a beautiful boy there. I'm like, really? Oh, good. Lovely. <laughs> right? They want romance. They read Pride and Prejudice. You know, this is the stories, the stories they really love. By contrast, the pornography depicted on the internet for millions idealizes not committed personal relationships, but illicit encounters based on disrespect, detachment, promiscuity, and abuse, both verbal and physical. And it's that difference that actually gives rise to the shock and distress that a spouse feels and when they discover that their partner is a habitual user of internet pornography. 
As far back as 2003, in a meeting of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, they found that even in 2003 that 56% of their divorce cases involved one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. So you can see how then this is, pornography is an attack on this. It's an assault on this, religiously, philosophically, and fundamentally. Now let's just look very quickly before I um, come to the uh, philosophical aspect on some of these socio-cultural challenge. We said that it's the seventh largest industry in North America. I'm talking about North America because I'm from North America now, but uh, beyond all of these um, negatives of, of uh, porn exposure today, all the sexual experimentation and unwanted pregnancies that Andrea told us about and abortion and the spread of disease and so on, this river of degradation, a massive rise in child molestation, child pornography, violence, rape, STDs, sexual slavery and prostitution and so on. These are all linked to the porn industry. So again, it isn't just an issue of all oh, this horrible pornography online that's um, affecting people's minds. Because the porn industry, as the seventh largest industry in North America, 97 billion worldwide, has to be fed. And so it's linked with strict strip clubs and sex clubs and prostitution and the trafficking of women, mostly young girls, averaging 15 years of age. There is a modern and devastating form of slavery today that is being driven by this insatiability of the porn industry. In Ontario, where I live, around 1,000 women are believed to be sold into slavery in Ontario every year. In the United States, the federal government estimates between 14 and 17 and a half thousand people are trafficked into the country every year. Of those, 80% are female, 50% are children. 70% of these victims are used for sexual exploitation to meet the demand of the porn industry and the trades that support or result from it. And many of these traffickers are found with the video equipment on them. So this depersonalizing violence and sadomasochism is actually related to a rising crime. One representative study looked at juvenile sex offenders and found that disproportionate numbers had been exposed to pornography as young children. 29 of 30 juvenile offenders studied had been exposed to X-rated magazines or videos at the age of seven. Other researchers found that heavy pornography users are six times more likely to rape. Some 83% of rapists, 67% of child molesters consume hardcore pornography at very high rates. So you've got the objectification of women and children, this depersonalization, this sexualization of our culture. Who does it put at risk most? Women and children. So you see the assault, the direct attack on the family. Addiction to all of this works like a drug. 
and remaps the brain. Some scientists have argued that pornography does more than just spike levels, levels of dopamine in the, in the brain for the pleasure sensation. It changes the physical matter within the brain. And these new neurological pathways require more pornographic material to trigger the reward sensation. And one of the problems I've read on good authority is that Climaxes induced by pornography do not release endorphins, which are the chemicals that make people feel satisfied. Whereas sexual intimacy with a real person does lead to the release of endorphins after sexual release. So the very satisfaction people are craving through this cannot be attained. So it's like a trap. And they need more and more and more of it to get the same effect. And it has to get more and more perverse, and yet it never leads to the sense of satisfaction that they are looking for. Dr. Ra Valerie Voon, Cambridge University, she's an authority, a global authority on addiction, studied the phenomenon of changes in the brain of heavy users exposed to hardcore pornography. And she concluded that brains showed clear and distinct parallels to those with substance addictions. So such addicted men, studies have shown, are far less attractive to a prospective female partner. And the habit often renders them incapable of sexual satisfaction with a real woman. So the chronic use is not just associated with impotence, but depression and self-loathing. And it's well known that people's marriages, their hobbies, their jobs, their relationships disintegrate, as does their emotional and mental health eventually. But there's been, despite all of this, changing attitudes to pornography, tolerance of it. My grandparents' generation, my parents' generation had nothing like this kind of exposure. You know, even when I was a boy, if, if, if you wanted to get a dirty magazine, you had to walk down to a store and ask for, not that I did, I should add, I wasn't old enough, and ask for a magazine from under the counter. And so you had to break through a whole series of, bar uh, 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 what, would I, what would you call them? A whole series of, uh, of obstacles, of social obstacles, to expose yourself to that material. You had to expose yourself to a certain amount of embarrassment. Although the Longford Report, as far back as 1972 in the US, revealed the effects of pornography as harmful, legal action has actually pushed back the legal boundaries. Obscenity laws have been pushed back. And demands, the, the demands of the advocates for it, are asking for this libertarian free expression for total license of their demeaning materials. Now we could say, well, child pornography has been resisted to a degree, but the abuse and exploitation of women has not, and both Christian and feminist groups have pointed this out periodically, although from different philosophical points of view. Women being portrayed as objects. So the, the pop industry is particularly notorious for this, especially R&B culture, rap culture. Um, the objectifying and use of women in these terms is just very, very popular culturally, and it seems to be almost accepted. 
and now some people say, well, we legislate against the child pornography because it's not consensual, whereas with, with the adults, with women, with adult women, it is. But this is in many cases false as well. Because the massive traffic of women across the world to feed this industry involves the emotional, psychological, and physical abuse that often leads to this consent. People can be abused and exploited even if they're not fully aware of it, can't they? And there are various economic, that is poverty, emotional, emotional deprivation, and psychological reasons why a person may consent to exploitation. And that's why a civilized society and culture has a responsibility to protect those who are unwittingly or in ignorance manipulated and exposed to abuse, even if it's just their own depravity. There's a reason why in the UK and Canada you can't sell yourself into slavery by law, even if you wanted to. Shouldn't it strike us as exceedingly perverse that dogfighting, bull baiting, fox hunting, and whaling are illegal? But the exploitation of women in the seventh largest industry isn't. So we're, we're concerned about the, the, I mean, in Germany, uh, laws had to be re revived, reintroduced a few years ago to prevent the sexual abuse of animals because of zoophilia springing up all over the country. We're concerned about animals. That was animal rights activists. What about women, young girls? How many of us would want our son, our daughter, to be objectified and humiliated in today's porn industry. And yet there are people in society who say this is all refreshing emancipation. This is freedom. Freedom from outmoded restraints and a new morality is declared and celebrated. They deny sex is being debased. And this makes us think about, as a culture, about the nature of the human person about the character of the society we want our children to live in, and these issues of abuse and exploitation and true sexual fulfillment. Now, here's one of my favorite women in the history of Britain. She said this, the exaltation of violent and explicit sex increasingly coarsens the content of films and books and eventually and inevitably life itself. This is not progress. It is not even liberation, it is decadence. We conservatives are not most of us saints, but even as sinners, we have a duty to fight as wholeheartedly as our enemies promote the attack on the family that threatens the West at its foundations. Well, as I wrap this up, I want to talk about the religious root of pornography. Cultural implications, uh, statistics, don't take us to the root of the problem. The ubiquity of pornography and addiction are the byproduct of a deeper issue, and that issue is religious. It's a religious issue. A pornographic culture is the logical development of a specific worldview that shapes people's understanding of their place in the world. And this is evident from the fact that the very promoters of pornography don't simply insist on the right to distribute it. 
They justify it as true freedom. They justify it as true freedom and a higher morality. A higher morality. Christianity, in its very opposition to pornography, is said to be a moral evil. So they say they stand on the moral high ground. We are repressive. And we have the distorted view. They have the right view. And in this, they are indebted to the Enlightenment thinker, actually a darling of many modern intellectuals, the Marquis de Sade. From whom we get the term sadism, by the way. The Marquis de Sade. He sought the promotion of sexual gratification by inflicting pain and debasing others. And this is now the subject of, of popular films, the movies. Not even considered pornography. Fifty Shades of Grey and so on. He wanted the legalization of rape and murder. He pursued the, he advocated for the criminalization of Christianity. His thinking was utterly perverse, yes, but it was logical. Why? Well, he denied God. He denied sin and the fall of man in rebellion against God. So the universe was totally amoral and man-centered. If you've got no God, what do you have? Nature. If there's no God above nature, all you have is nature. That's the essence of paganism. And if anything occurs in nature, it's natural. If anything occurs in nature, it's natural, it's normal. If you don't have God, human beings made in God's image, and the fall of man into sin, you only have nature. And if it happens, it's nature, in nature, it's natural, it's normal. If you can imagine it, if you can desire it, it's part of nature. Not only to be tolerated, but released. There's no transcendent moral authority to judge man's desires as good or evil, as right or wrong. In de Sade's worldview, in the worldview of the pornographers, Sade's goal was total freedom from all restraints, and that's the message of our progressive educational philosophy today. In his day, most considered de Sade insane. But he was not insane. He was utterly morally bankrupt, but he wasn't insane. They thought him insane because they still believed that there was at least a natural law that governed reality. Even if their God may have been a deistic, distant God, they still believe in natural law undergirding the universe. So they looked at a man like, Sassad, as a, like uh, uh, the Marquis de Sade as a culture and said he's mad. But Sade actually saw the weakness of their position, and he forced the starting point of the Enlightenment to its logical conclusion. He was initially banned and imprisoned for his obscenities and blasphemies, but today intellectuals celebrate the Marquis de Sade. He anticipated the modern world in which he would be praised and admired as uncovering the infallible voice of nature, which Christianity seeks to suppress. Now, with Darwin, the idea of nature as a source of law was destroyed in, a, in a, essentially a form of atheism. 
Chance and chaos were now ultimate. There's no natural law. There was chance and there was chaos, and man came up from irrational brutes. He was an animal. The evolutionary faith insists that people must be understood in terms of the primitive, the animalistic, and unconscious urges. There are evolutionary justifications of rape today. I've read them. You know, if, you're, if, if the basic drive of, a, of the human animal is to pass on your genes so that, you're off, so that you can have as many offspring as possible, so that, you, your, so that your selfish genes survive, then rape has a, a justification for survival. The idea of the noble savage popularized during the French Revolution was the spirit of the Romantic movement as well, that the primitive, not Christian civilization, but primitivism of the noble savage, that was the ideal human being. Unencumbered by all of these artificial taboos and restrictions. M much modern art and a lot of religious environmentalism today takes this idea as well. Untouched nature. Right? A pantheism. And contemporary variations on psychoanalysis look to a, supp a supposed primal horde in the unconscious past as the chaotic source of sexual power. Because it's a world ruled by chaos and primitivism at root. And therefore, crime is easily identified with sex. If life lacks transcendent meaning, you're merely an animal that evolved through a chaotic, evolved thinking or thought in a chaotic universe. And our true nature being is being suppressed by societal taboos and myths about God. So we have to throw off those moorings of false guilt, of ideas like sin and fallenness, and express every sexual inclination, release them. And that leads to a hatred of the real world that God has made and a retreat into fiction, a world of fiction. And pornography is part of the illusory world of fiction. It's a fantasy world in which people are manipulated and violated. It is thought without consequence in the real world. So people think, well, I can just... Take in pornography and it'll have no consequence in the real world. It's a world of fantasy. To those who support such a worldview, to attempt to restrict or limit their practice is evil. It's a denial of their self-expression. Just as, you know, me walking into a doctor's surgery saying, I'm a woman, treat me as such. And if you don't treat them as such, you are... You're, you are denying their self-expression. Pornography, therefore, is religiously a declaration of freedom from God, freedom from reality, and freedom from his law. And it's completely logical for a pagan culture to celebrate it. There's nothing shocking about it. I mean, in the sense that it's not shocking that this is the direction our culture has taken as it's thrown off the Christian faith. I remember discussing actually child rape by perverted priests on radio with a professor who's at the University of Toronto now, and he refused to acknowledge it was a sin and a crime. 
because people are just sexual animals, they want to express their natural drives, pass on their DNA with or without available women, and therefore they'll engage in all manner of sexual practices. And this was intellectuals like Emil Durkheim, sociologist who wrote on the normality of crime in his Rules of Sociological Method. He said the criminal is an evolutionary pioneer developing a new moral path to the next stage of evolution. So you can't censure crime and perversion too seriously because it may be the anticipation of a future morality. So sexual crime is a legitimate way of life. It's the potential next step. So we've got movements today promoting intergenerational love, they call it. Pedophilia. They want the removal of this from the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual. They want it decriminalized. Why? Because whatever occurs in nature is normative. You can't criticize nature. Man's an aspect of nature. We're beyond good and evil, for God, beyond nature, is dead. And this is the idealization of primitivism. It revolts against law, decency, institutions, traditions, laws, discipline, Christianity. And Christ and the gospel become the true enemy. Now, if you want to understand that, and I'm almost done, you have to understand the fertility cult, which dominated the Western world before Christianity and is still present in much of the world today. In the rituals of fertility cults, chaos is the source of power and regeneration. Everything evolved, remember, from some primeval chaos. And there are these unceasing cycles for gods and men in this evolution, but chaos is basic. Chaos is fertile, it's potent, it's revitalizing because it's the source of creation. So if you want social freedom and you want social revitalization and renewal, you have to look to chaos. So whether it was songs about fallacies or obscenely sexualized dance or orgies, incest, sodomy, bestiality, these were all commonly practiced at festival times, even in biblical times, in Baalism and Moloch worship. You know, when the, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain for the Ten Commandments, comes back down, it says the children of Israel rose up to play. That's a fertility cult. So this is, again, nothing new. In ancient Egypt, as late as actually the 19th century, people were mating with the sacred crocodile. And this faith is again being expressed in Pornography, you renew potency through acts of perversion and abuse, buggery, pederasty, bestiality, and so forth. And there were festivals in the Roman world like Saturnalia, which involved, were chaos cults, which involved an, an, an inversion and destruction of all order for a certain period of time to renew society. Fields were copulated in to regenerate the land. And similarly, as Rome deteriorated, the circus became dominant and was related to the fertility cult. Women were subjected to rape, even by animals, for the entertainment of mobs in the Colosseum. Boys were assaulted and so on. This was regenerating for society, fertilization by chaos from a lower realm. And this is where this thing all ties itself up. This is fundamentally demonic. 
Right, that the root of a pornographic culture is spiritual darkness. De demonic powers are at work because it was believed to introduce primordial power into man and his society as he violated various taboos, forces were released that were thought that the, that the one who practiced these perversions could harness. And as a culture dies, whether consciously or not, it seeks not regeneration from above, but revitalization from below. Not regeneration from above, but revitalization from below. And so today, re evolutionary doctrine repackaged, brought into human psychology by Freud, has brought about this integration downward into the void. Guilt for Freud was the result of an unconscious, unorganized id. The id and the ego. It was demanding, infantile, instinctual, and it involved an unconscious desire, that is libido, Freud thought, to murder and eat the father and copulate with the mother. That's what he thought was basic to human psychology, to a man's psychology. The ego, the thinking self, then wrestles with the id, these unconscious libidinous urges, and then the superego, which is the teaching of your parents and the church and everything else, tries to bring some sort of balance into all of this tension. Now, this, is, this kind of thinking has been discredited somewhat, but it's entered into public consciousness. And you think about just the way people swear. When, it, when, it, when a culture ceases to be Christian and people start to, to, to swear and curse, swearing takes on a sexual connotation. The swear words are sexual. Women are reduced to a body part. And the sexual act is reduced to an act of hostility and aggression. The F word means literally to cheat, trick, take advantage of, deceive, treat someone unfairly. There's every film you put on, you can't avoid it. It's absolutely everywhere. Some people use it as punctuation. Yes, barnyard animals squabble, squabble with each other and copulate, and wild animals fight for sexual dominance, but human beings are not animals. We're not animals. Darwin was wrong. Freud was wrong. Their goal is a cosmic sexual experience. The goal of pornography, ultimately, they say, is freedom, and in that freedom, ecstasy. Raw, primitive power, but... The Lord Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. You see, ecstasy and pornography is not just a biological ideal, it's a religious ideal. But it's a parasite that feeds on a real, valid, meaningful hunger for intimacy in human beings for bliss, for freedom, for well-being, for joy, and it perverts that and suggests they can be satisfied in the perverse, illicit exploitation of others, and then it seeks its thrills in the use and abuse of others. And they say, this is freedom. But Jesus says otherwise. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does Paul say? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In the gospel, we are fully reestablished as persons, precious, unique image bearers of God, prefigured, called forth in a universe of total meaning. Not meaninglessness, where we're seeking 
ecstasy through some sexual experience. Despite all our fallenness and our guilt and our impurity and sin, we are marvelous creatures. Our humanity is affirmed by God. Our creational sexuality is affirmed. Romance and delight in sexual intimacy is affirmed, just as purpose and dignity in our relationships are affirmed. Remember how, among the many attributes of God, God is described. God is love. And those who live in God live in love, and God lives in them. That's a self-giving relational term. It's not an exploitative term, is it? Love is intensely personal, and it doesn't use the beloved, but in self-sacrifice serves the other. Pornography is the deformation of sexual intimacy. Marital love is its reformation and restoration. Pornography is the deformation But marital love reflected in a a relationship that mirrors the relationship between Christ and his church, that is the love of God, is the reformation and restoration of human sexuality.